I pray day after day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right. So I had made brief mention of it's been the holidays, so you may have forgotten um, or may have missed the announcement, but the Christian Missionary Alliance has a 40 days of prayer that they start the new year with, and we're going to be participating in it to some extent. Um, And we had some things we were thinking about printing out. We realized it's a lot, a lot of pages. Uh, So probably tomorrow, if you're on our email list, you'll receive an email. Uh, If you want to follow on, uh, there are some daily devotionals to go with this 40 days of prayer. And then also starting next Sunday evening, uh, in the evenings, and we may still tweak the time a little bit, um, but we're going to have an evening prayer meeting um, and our own John Sapia is going to lead the first one next week. For those of you who don't know John and Lisa, they are members of our church, but they're not here all that much because John is our uh, district regional, uh, regional director for our area. So he attends our church. He's a member of our church, but he's often on Sundays at another church uh, preaching or sharing something. So, uh, But John is, is going to share it kick us off with the the uh, 40 days of prayer evening services next week and we'll let you know more about the time uh, this week so we'll know exactly what time it'll be but it'll be Sunday evening and if you don't if you're not on our email uh, on the church website at oasisfl.org if you would like to give us your contact information there's a let's get acquainted button on there somewhere that you can Go and ask to be included in the, uh, in the emails and stuff like that. So we invite you to do that. All right, so with that, we're going to start a little preaching on prayer. And one of my first places I always like to go to when I'm thinking about prayer is John 17, where Jesus prays for not only the apostles, but also for us. And it's a wonderful passage, so for this week and next week, we're going to be looking at, we're going to call it the great prayer um, that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. I would encourage you to look it over during the week, too, just as reminders of uh, the encouragement to know that Jesus prayed for you. Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty interesting to know that and pretty encouraging, I think. So we're going to have some focuses we're going to look at. Because what we can learn from Jesus is what was important to him to pray about. Don't you think that's important to know? What did Jesus find it important to pray about? And as we do that, uh, we find, as I've mentioned as well, a a book that I recommended when I first came here, uh, Praying with Paul, that we find that our prayers for our normal day-to-day prayers often fall quite short of the prayers of Jesus and Paul and others that we're mostly concerned about spiritual things. So in John chapter 17, we'll see these focuses, and I think I've got a slide for that. Um, He focuses on the glorification of himself, the spiritual safety of the apostles, the witness of the apostles, the sanctification of the apostles, and finally, the unity of the church. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first four of those points, and next Sunday, we'll look at the fifth one, the unity of the church. And the big idea from this morning we want to remember is that in the moments approaching his greatest trial, Jesus concerns himself with his followers. So 
that, that's a, an encouraging thing to remember and a challenging thing for us, too. What is our concerns? What are the things we focus on in our prayer? So new life always conquers death. Being from up north, uh, and some of you are from up north, you'll know what I'm talking about. And down here there are some trees that lose their leaves briefly. But what's always amazing is you could have a windy, blizzardy winter, and in the spring sometimes there are still a few dead leaves that some trees hung on to. But when the new leaves start coming out, they push the dead ones off, and then they finally fall. And, and that's just a, an illustration, I guess, that new life always conquers death. They survived the winter with the strength to cling to that tree even though they were dead, but they cannot withstand new life. Jesus was looking forward to the same thing. His resurrection would defeat death because death could not withstand the power of life. So we're going to read together. I'm going to actually read us through the entire chapter of John 17. I want you to have the full context and appreciation of what Jesus is praying. And remember that this is a prayer right before he was arrested. So if you're wondering, as he knew what was going to happen to him, what was the last thing on his mind, his great concern, you can see it right here in John 17. So let's look at it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And have, known, have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me, before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. It's a great passage of Scripture, and there's a lot said there. But there's one big impression I think we can take. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. He wants the church unified. He wants the church to be with him in heaven. So those five main focuses, the glorification of Christ, the spiritual safety of the apostles, the witness of the apostles, the sanctification of the apostles, most of those things about the apostles will extend to us as well as believers. And finally, the unity of the church. So again, the big idea is that as he's approaching his greatest trial, Jesus' great concern is his followers. The first focus he has is on his own glory. And Jesus here defines eternal life. He says eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, know here is not merely as an acquaintance. It's not merely, oh, I know something about this guy from history. The word that we see translated to know in, from the Greek, as it was originally written, it, it has a broader meaning than that, a more, um, maybe a, a more impactful meaning. It means to know experientially, or to grasp intellectually, or to be known, to perceive, to find out, to learn, to be known. It's actually the same word we see used as a descriptor for the relationship between a husband and wife, to know. It means a deep, intimate relationship that has ongoing learning involved and understanding based upon experience. The mind's understanding and intellect and also an openness of self to the other knowing you. By which I mean knowing God like knowing one's spouse is not a one-way but a two-way street where each gets to know each other. This is eternal life, that they know you, Jesus says, God the Father, and me, Jesus. Knowing God is the key to eternal life. Hosea 6.3 says, Let us know, press on to know the Lord, he is going, his going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. 
And Hosea 4.6 gives this warning, my people are destroyed for lack of love, emotions, feelings. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. Powerful and a little stern warning there. That knowledge is important. We need to know God. We need to seek him out to find out more about him. So Jesus is praying for eternal life for all those who God the Father has given him. And he defines eternal life as a knowledge of God. A knowledge that Hosea encouraged those he preached to to press on towards. And a knowledge that if it's lacking brings destruction. If lack of knowledge brings destruction, then Jesus gives the opposite corollary that the knowledge of God brings life. See that? The absence of knowledge, Hosea says, brings destruction. And Jesus says in this prayer, the knowledge of God brings life. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him. Jesus has done the work the others sent him to do. That is the Father. And now he asks that the other, the Father, glorify him. This glory was not a promotion for Jesus, by the way, but rather a restoration of the glory he had with the Father, a glory that Jesus had before the world existed. And as John's gospel begins with that very idea that Jesus existed eternally with the Father, it's important that we understand this, that Jesus has existed eternally with the Father. He is not a creation of the Father who came later, but instead he is the Word become flesh. John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And Jesus nearly got stoned when he said this from John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly, he was understood by the people who wanted to stone him as equating himself with God. So Jesus spoke clearly about his eternal existence. He's not asking to be glorified as though this was a new thing for him, but he's anticipating the restoration of his heavenly position and the glory with the Father. And this is a reminder to us of how low Jesus had to come to minister to humanity. He had to come pretty low to minister to us. If you ever go diving in a lake or in the ocean, as you get lower and lower, you get further from the light. You're in murkier water and colder water usually. And if you descend to the depths, you find yourself among strange creatures. And you may be fascinated with it a while, but your nature as a human would eventually draw you to get back out of that water and get back to your own glorified position that is above the water. And that illustration is but a sorry and incomplete and completely lacking illustration. Because really there's no grasping that we can do to understand how Jesus had to condescend to come down into our realm so that he could demonstrate God's love toward us. 
And so it is completely understandable that he would seek to be restored to the glory he had with the Father before the world existed. In Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, it says that Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. After praying for his glorification then, Jesus begins to pray for the apostles. He prays for their spiritual safety, although not for their physical safety. Do you notice that? It's interesting that Jesus had used a metaphor in his ministry of being like a mother hen who wants to take care of her chicks, right? And we see in our world today the enormous amount of precautions that are made to protect children. Many billions are spent each year by parents who are convinced that they need to take every action to keep their kids safe. So the car seat industry and the protective equipment for every activity and the permission slips and all of these ways that we concern ourselves with our children and their physical safety, it is to the point where some parents are even obsessed with keeping their kids safe. And I'm sure I'm not the only adult here who heard my parents talk about how we used to just lay in the back seat. And if we had baby carriers at all, they weren't even belted in, right? And we didn't have bike helmets, and we didn't have knee guards for roller skating or shin guards for soccer and all of those things. And it's fine to make an effort to keep kids safe, but as we discovered a few years ago in our family, that just to fall off of an ottoman about this high off the ground onto a plush carpet could result in a broken arm. And if you want to know about that, ask Ariella. She knows. And some of you have discovered similar things, that you could lock down every dangerous substance and somehow the kid finds a way to consume something poisonous. I've heard of parents who were so set on keeping their kids healthy, they hardly let them have any sugar. They fed them the healthiest foods and the kid still develops cancer. As much as we take all of these precautions to keep them physically safe, let us remember that Jesus was far less concerned about physical safety in his prayer and much more concerned about spiritual safety. In fact, he's made it clear that they most certainly would not be physically safe. But he wants them protected not from physical injury. He wants them protected from the evil one. We try to avoid any situation that would cause our children pain, and yet... We cannot prevent them from experiencing pain. But Jesus prays that the Father keep them in his name. He wants their joy fulfilled, and that joy is not the result of a pain-free life, but it's the very joy of Christ. He's given them the word, which brings life. And in the world, the people of the world, the people of the word will be hated by the people of the world. Anytime someone's different, they'll be hated. And particularly when the difference is a life attempting to please God because it brings conviction to all those who witness it. Now we as Christians hopefully raise our children differently than the world does. We, like Jesus, ought to be far more concerned with their spiritual well-being than we are concerned with their grades or, or extracurricular activities and how many friends we have. Those things have a time and place, and I'm not saying they're unimportant, but what are the priorities? 
Jesus prayed for the spiritual protection of his apostles. He did not pray for their physical safety. He did not pray that they would avoid the world altogether either. And this is linked to their witness in the world. He said he did not pray that they would be taken out of the world. In other words, he did not want Christians to be so secluded in their holy huddle that they never interacted with the world around them. In fact, it was quite the opposite. So here we have the tension of being a Christian in the world. We're not to be of the world, mimicking it so well that no one could even guess we're different. But at the same time, we're not to be of the world. We are not to remove ourselves from it either. And the why behind this is our mission as believers. If we never get out of our holy huddle and around us, we will not have opportunities to share the gospel with others. So on the one hand, we're not to be of the world, living like we've never experienced the resurrection of Christ and the baptism and all of that, but, and that should result in a pursuit of holiness. On the other hand, we are not to be so uninvolved with the world that we have no opportunities to share the good news. So how far do we go in either direction? We have to seek a balance. On the one end of the pendulum, you have maybe the Amish lifestyle, right? Where there may be some protection from the evil in the world because of a tightly controlled community and a way of life. That could be good maybe in some ways. But I would argue that the average Amish person does not have many opportunities for evangelism. On the other hand, I know of Christians who do everything they can do to make sure that their church doesn't appear to be a church. And that they are so much like their neighbors that the neighbors would never guess they're people of faith. And they find out later, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, I never knew. Oh, for shame. If if your neighbors can't tell, if your co-workers can't tell, if your extended family can't tell, you need to do something to change. These, there's churches like, they have, they're so wanting to be like the world. I've heard of churches having wine tastings. They take the word church out of the name in order to appeal to the unsaved. They don't want a building that looks like a church. They don't want a Bible study that sounds like it might be addressing sin. They, won't, they seem to want to be of the world and in it. But Jesus prayed that his disciples would not be of the world. And at the same time, he did not pray that they would be removed from the world either. And finally, Jesus prays that the apostles be sanctified in the truth, which is God's word. He has sent them into the world as the Father has sent him into the world. And this sanctification is being set apart. In the old covenant with Israel, God had given like all these specific commands to the people of Israel concerning their worship, how they were to live, what they could eat, even concerning their clothing. So God has always wanted to set his people apart. Now, we don't have quite the same specifics as far as what we can eat or wear, but we do have a much, uh, there's a lot of instruction in Scripture that tells us how we ought to live. And if we work on following those by learning what the Bible says about what God expects of us, then we will be set apart from the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth and gives us our marching orders on how we should live. Does he give us specifics on whether you should buy an iPhone or something inferior to that? 
No, he doesn't. But he lays out a moral code by which we should live. And my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What is that directly linked to in Hosea when he says it? It's directly linked to in his statutes. The lack of knowledge that destroys them is not knowing God. And God's people are to be set apart or sanctified in his truth. Hebrews 10, 8 to 10, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Have you ever noticed that that first part that gives the list of the things that says it, people always pick up the one that they, they hate the most and ignore the rest? You ever notice that? But there's a lot of things there that we might have to look at ourselves and say, yeah, Paul's right. Such were some of us. But we were washed, we were sanctified. Titus 2, 11 to 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, awaiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, my friends, I started with a prayer of Jesus. But he did not just pray for these things. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Are you zealous for good works? You see, Jesus didn't just pray for this and say, well, I'll leave it there, Lord. It's in your hands. He prayed it. He did it. And it is finished. For those of us who have put our faith in him, he's done this. That's what we celebrated with communion. That's the blood we sang about. And he prayed that we would be sanctified as well. Next week, we'll look how he prayed about the unity of the church. And I pray that, that as we study that together, we will be challenged and, if needed, convicted because Christ prays for the unity in the church. And some of us always have to keep working on that, right? It's not easy. I mean, he gave us each other. How are we supposed to get along? Because we're united in Christ. So we'll look at that next week. Remember the big idea here, though, this morning as we go into the 40 days of prayer. 
in the moments approaching his greatest trial, what was Jesus most concerned about? He was most concerned about his church. That's you, and that's me. That's us. Or as I, my friend, when I was younger, used to always say, us guys. His mom would always correct him. <laughs> us guys need to do it, right? So let's pray, and then we're going to sing one more song together, and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Oh, Lord Jesus, that you prayed for us. That you prayed for us. But not just prayed for us, Lord. You did the work that saw to it that your prayer was answered and will be answered. Oh, Lord, what love is this? Lord, how much we desire to know you better. Give us a more, more desire, Lord, to know you better. Give us the strength and the patience to get into your word ourselves so that we can know you better, Lord. As we consider, Lord, what, what you prayed in your final moments before going to the cross on our behalf, may we reprioritize our prayers, Lord, that they would align with your priorities. May we do it together over this 40 days of prayer and beyond, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a song.